Pew Research questionnaires have suggested that we are barreling toward a time that uh, more people in America will not identify as Christian than people than others who take the test. It's at a tipping point of greater than 50% coming up, uh, no longer identify with Christianity. Um, it, it's no surprise to us that, of course, in this kind of environment, we are fostering uh, a whole number of people who uh, don't know a lot about the Bible. And then, because we're all Adam's children, including me, we tend to be proud. So it's like, oh, yeah, we, we know some stuff. And so when it comes to work, you know, do you know anything about the Bible? Yeah, yeah. I mean, have you, you, you know any Bible verses? Yeah, oh, I do. Well, give me one. You know, God helps those who help themselves. Now, notwithstanding the fact that Ben Franklin published that English proverb in 1736 in Poor Richard's Almanac, it's not a biblical verse. So one problem is we, we, we think we know these verses that are there. It's like, all right, well, give me another chance. All right, well, go ahead. A stitch in nine saves time. Again, an, an oft-repeated English proverb, which has some wisdom to it. Face it now uh, so you won't have to face it in a worse level later. But a greater problem than thinking we know uh, a verse that is actually not a verse is actually being familiar with a verse and not understanding its implication. We come this morning to a mountain peak in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. There's a lot in this verse and it's a so-called a commonly known Bible verse. I'm going to read the passage this morning, Romans 8, 26 through 30, and then we'll come back and say all together the one verse that will preoccupy our attention from the Word of God this morning. You might have heard this verse. Do we understand this verse? Better, are we appropriating it? On this Memorial Day weekend, we stop at this mountain peak in Romans chapter 8, and we consider its glorious implications. I'm reading this morning from the English Standard Version. I'm reading Romans 8, 26 through 30 as we go verse by verse through this book. 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but... The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Hear the word of the Lord. 
Now let's all together say this one verse in unison and think of it this morning. Together? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Hear the word of the Lord. Plan of attack this morning is to ponder this verse first and consider four musings from what this verse has to say to us. Secondly, we stop and identify two bedrock truths that are driven into our heart when we read this verse. And finally, three quick questions that this verse asks us. I'm glad you're here on Memorial Day weekend to be with us to hear this together. We must get Romans 8 and 28 right. It's a wonderful verse that must be read correctly and understood. So four deductions this morning. Deduction number one, Romans 8 and 28 is not a gospel band-aid to put on the gaping wounds of this broken world. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. This is a wonderful verse. Though treated actually in a trite way and treated glibly by some, My mom died, and I'm hurting. Well, Romans 8 and 28, all things work together for good. I lost my job, and I feel broken in half. Well, Romans 8 and 28, my son is getting a divorce, and our family is fractured. Well, it's okay. Romans 8 and 28, my husband is distant. I'm becoming concerned about our relatedness together. Oh, it's all right. Romans 8 and 28. I had an appointment on Wednesday at the oncologist, and the news was really hard to receive about cancer they've discerned in my body. Oh, it's okay. Romans 8 and 28. Our broken world will bring us to gaping wounds. Is Romans 8 and 28 true? Absolutely. Is it a firm foundation upon which to stand? Absolutely. Is it a universal anecdote in the moment, in the teeth of the harsh circumstance to be passed out that serves as an antidote that will take care of everything? No, I don't think so. Think of a Navy corpsman with me. The person's on a field of battle in a theater of war that I most appreciate are Navy corpsmen. They get involved in nasty things as medics, but they are life-saving in their provision. And the corpsman will be yelled for. He'll come into position, and he has a bag of tricks in the field that are designed to help uh, the soldier uh, injured. Uh, He will engage in life-saving measures that will get him then to a forward field triage-like hospital place that will get him to a facility. But I I just admire them. And their their stories are 
unbelievable. And especially in environments with a lot of kinetic devices that tear limbs apart and dismember bodies, their stories are valorous. But of all the things utilized by a Navy corpsman, I would be shocked if there was a Band-Aid in his bag. As if to come upon a horrific scene of tragic battlefield energy and to pull out a Band-Aid and say, well, here you go. Put this Band-Aid on. Think you're going to be okay, soldier? Hang in there. Stay with us. In the same way, we must be very careful and judicious in our use of this verse. Is it true? Absolutely. Is it concrete and a concrete expression of God upon which we can stand in the midst of life's shifting sands? Absolutely. Does it always and ever encourage everyone we pass it out to glibly in the fever pitch moment of their crisis? Absolutely not. Romans 8 and 28 is not a gospel band-aid to put on the gaping wounds of this broken world. Secondly, the second deduction from Romans 8 and 28 is this. This verse does not say that all that happens to us is good. There's a reading of this verse that has turned some people away from gospel Christianity. What? You're one of those that believes that everything that I've ever experienced is good? I will dismiss Jesus over that. Some stuff that happens in life is wrenching and life-altering. In that sense, it is not good. It does not feel good, nor can it accurately, accurately be said that it is good. Nor does this verse affirm that Everything will turn out okay in this life. Johnny Erickson Tata, who ha is a uh, quadriplegic and has lived for over the last 50 years in her wheelchair, a glorious testimony to the preserving grace of God for a follower of Jesus. I love her story. But as she gave herself to the Lord and worked through this circumstance by her grace when she dove into that pond as a teenager thereafter all of her issues were not resolved in fact again this morning uh, if her life is normal and usual today her aide who has been with her for a long time will help her uh, get her stiff limbs out of bed and will help cleanse her and get her dressed for her day and get her seated in her chair and get her started. Uh, praise God for his work of grace. Uh, years ago, there were for children's books, I remember maybe wrongly, the titles were golden books. But the last page of them was always the same. And everybody lived happily ever after. The eternal hope of knowing Jesus Christ has before us a resolution to our suffering and difficulties in the life that is to come. In time, 
We machinate like machines, a word for gears coming together. We machinate through struggles and difficulties and things that hurt us. Evil is present in this world that we find ourselves situated in. Sin has come. Death has entered. When he says, moved by the Spirit of God, in this inspired verse, we know that for those who love God, all things work together. The idea is that not individual things taken in isolation and considered by themselves as a one-off, but laid end to end in a lifetime, and oh, the real fancy word is vicissitudes, the ups and the downs of life, put all together in a stream of a line of a lifetime. It can be said for those who love God, and it can be said for those who are called according to his purpose, that all together all things work for good. Indeed, it can be affirmed. Good. This verse does not say that all that happens to us is good. Maybe you walk in this morning and you're in the midst of something and whatever you feel in your spirit, it is not good. You feel beat out by the circumstances that you are experiencing and going through. Let's read this verse right. This verse doesn't say that Everything that happens to us in this old broken world is good. Thirdly, what's interesting is this verse does not apply to everyone. This verse does not apply to... Actually, there are two qualifiers here in the verse. Number one, notice how the Spirit of God has put a fence around this glorious truth. And we know that fence number one, for those who... Love God. Cannot it be said that not everyone loves God? The question before us this morning is, of course, do we? Jonathan Edwards, the colonial preacher, said, the distinguishing mark of a person who has come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, the authentic follower of Jesus, is their love for God. Do they love God? And does their love for God show up in their obedience? And the joy that they take in living for this one who loved us and gave himself for us. Now the second qualifier is here as well. You've seen it with me in this verse. And we know that qualifier number one, for those who love God, all things work together for good. Qualifier number two, for those who are called according to his purpose. This verse, this glorious reality, this firm foundation upon which to stand in our world, remember the previous verses speak of a world shaking, waiting, looking forward to the consummation when Jesus Christ will come and heal all things and will be released from the curse back to joy to the world. This is for the redeemed, for followers 
of Jesus. By the way, did you notice that our love for God has its source in his calling to us to come to him? We love, why? 1 John 4, 19, because he first loved us. This verse is a tremendous solace for those who know Jesus Christ as Savior. And I want you to know that it can be your solace this morning. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have never known the comfort and the security and the assurance that comes in knowing that God is working collectively the individual parts of my life together for good. What glory there is in knowing Jesus Christ. Do you know him this morning? Has God brought you here? What a memorable weekend it would be. Eric, I remember it was Memorial Day weekend, 2023. I was sitting there, and as you were preaching, the word of God, God opened my heart, and I came to believe. I stopped trusting in my self-righteousness to make me good enough to be accepted. But that day, I recognized my sin before God, and I placed my faith in Christ and received the free gift of salvation and came to experience his righteousness as a gift given to me that makes me acceptable. That's the weekend I came to Christ. Do you know Christ is your Savior? I want you to have this solace that comes from knowing in a broken world that is shaking that all things together are working out for my good. And you can have that this morning by simply receiving the free gift of eternal life. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I invite you to Jesus Christ this morning. I'm glad that you are here. The fourth deduction is this. Romans 8 and 28 is best processed in retrospect, that is, looking back, and infrequently in the moment, recognizing it on the spot. Romans 8 and 28 is best processed in retrospect and infrequently in the moment. The word fitly spoken is like an apple of gold in a picture of silver. I remember being with Max Helton, who was the former chaplain for NASCAR. He's a fascinating guy. He didn't care a wisp about racing, but he loved men and women, and he loved to watch them come to place their faith in Jesus. And he was living in the Charlotte area, actually in a moment of discouragement, was introduced to a guy, didn't know him from Adam, had a Bible study with him, found out later he was a NASCAR driver, and the guy came to place his faith in Christ. That started him into this ministry. And he was right in the middle of the warp and woo for the life of NASCAR. And, you know, I, I, I'm not a big NASCAR fan, but after Dale Earnhardt died at Daytona, I happened to be, for some reason, watching that race. I never watched the race, you know, what is it, a lot of left turns, and, you know, I usually went to sleep. The start's kind of fun. The last three laps are good. But um, uh, Max told me that in all the moments of crisis in NASCAR, then God enabled him to be around. And he was around. They came and got him when they took Earnhardt to the hospital. 
and he was standing next to Teresa Earnhardt when they were trying to revive her husband and finally declared him dead and turned to her and he ministered to her. He was in that moment. And then I, I misspoke uh, uh, this morning when I used the illustration in the first service. Um, I, I forgot the name of the, uh, I think I said Richard Childress, but it's the wrong name. There's another uh, owner of a car uh, racing group that uh, put his brother and the engine maker and his daughter onto a plane. They flew to Martinsville, and the plane went down. And uh, he was uh, invited to go to that guy's house, uh, and, and the whole team was traumatized, several members dead. And so we were talking to him, and we said, Max, what do you do in a moment of crisis? What have you found most effective? It's interesting. He said, you know what? He said, I never talked to him in that moment about streets of gold and the pearly gates. So well, what did you do when you went over uh, to the house? He said, well, I sat in a chair. I sat with them. I didn't say anything. Then he said, I'd get up and go to the other room. And there'd be somebody weeping quietly and I'd sit down with them for a little bit and then I'd pray just a brief prayer. Then I'd go back and sit in the other room where, where I was. And um, what, what he basically conceded was he didn't walk in and say, hey, I, let's, let's all get in a huddle. I want you to know that all things work together. And, and many members of the team were followers of Jesus Christ. He, he didn't liberally use that. In the moment, it's more difficult to see the glory and beauty of Romans 8 and 28 than it is in retrospect. Think of Joseph. You heard Tyler Read uh, when Joseph gets to uh, his brothers bowing down before him saying, don't kill us, our dad's dead. You know. He says, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. It's kind of the Old Testament corollary to Romans 8 and 28. But remember when he said it. You know, Scripture records him at 17 years old being put in a hole and sold to the Midianites. It's interesting that in that narrative, that's not the moment that he says at 17. And God, to those he loves, he makes all things work together for good. He goes down to Egypt at 17. At 28, after being sacked and falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, he's been in prison a while. He runs into the baker. He runs in to them while he is in prison the butler and the baker. He interprets a dream. He's 30 years old. His dream comes true. One of them lives. One of them goes to his death. And he's still rotting in prison. But the text doesn't say at that moment, oh, now all things work together for good. He interprets a dream for Pharaoh. And he comes into the Pharaoh's court. He's 30 years old. When he's 39... His family comes before him to get grain. That's not when he says it. When he's 56 years old, almost 40 years after the Midianites bought him out of that hole at the hands of his brother's betrayal, that's when he said, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. Now, I had a friend who's a pathologist, the most interesting guy, just a brilliant man, and I would ask him about his life and his work. 
And he introduced me to something called a frozen section, which many of you know what it is. But in surgery, in the middle of surgery, in the event of surgery, the surgeon will take a specimen sample of the tissue that he's taking out, and he wants to understand what it is. So on the spot, stat in the moment, they will give the sample to the pathologist, and surgery kind of stops, and the pathologist makes a slide, studies the slide, and in the moment will say to the surgeon what exactly the tissue is and its nature. It's called a frozen section. So in the moment, it's all figured out based on this professional and his look at the tissue. Now, there's another part of the work of a pathologist that's not a frozen section in the moment. It is that... uh, he, they take that sample from surgery, they take it to the lab, and a technician will uh, slice across the specimen, make slides with it, give it to the pathologist, and the pathologist will meticulously study all of those slides, comparing the sample and counting the various cells within a 10 power field and watching it. And he had trained his eye so well, he could, you could give him something and he could tell you where it came from in the body and what it was. He could give you something disease and he could tell you what kind of a disease it was. He would grade the tumor based on the number of uh, uh, cells that were present in a 10 power field in the, in the, in, in the uh, slide. But that's work over time. Well, Romans 8 and 28 is less like a frozen section and more like the general garden variety reflection over time that comes as we think about what God is taking us through. This verse is the truth of God. We do not back away from it at all. But it's to be passed out with judicious care, is it not? Now, what truth here really transforms how we live then? Let's think of that for a moment. What is this, why does this verse matter? How does it affect our lives? I think it affects our lives in two ways. Number one, two transforming truths here. The foundation of joyful perseverance is the assumption that God is at work bringing about good in our lives. Eric, how do you get through hard stuff? How do you persevere? The bedrock, if you take it clear to the bottom and you look under the footings, under the footings of the bottom of the superstructure of perseverance lies an assumption that we have about what's going on. Eric, what's going on? God is at work bringing about good in our lives. Notice how the verse starts. Look at 8.28. And we know. Now, that's similar to what he has said in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. He is talking about what is known characteristically, a common axiom that is accepted. Yeah, the world is shaking. Well, a common axiom that is accepted by the follower of Jesus is that underneath all of these sequential events that we go through, God is at work for good. And we know something commonly held, something understood, 
a core assumption for our perseverance. What we know is that God is at work in such a way. Now, my brother-in-law is an architect in Grand Rapids, and he's been there long enough to all, all the, a lot of the cool stuff in Grand Rapids he's been a part of and designing and working. And they put a convention center there, and he was uh, to ask, they were trying to figure out, work with some engineers on how do you hang a part of it over the Grand River so it's really a cool vista there, but you're, you know, how do you hang something out over a bank? And they had to try to get it figured out. And I said, Bill, how did you do that? He said, well, it's all about the structure you put underneath it. What did you do? He said, well, they got these, uh, I think they blast first, and then got, they bore into the rock with these big holes and then put reinforced rebar there and poured yards and yards and yards and yards of concrete that made these fingers stick out of the bank in such a way that it would support all the superstructure of the space that they hung out over the bank as it were on into the river and it looked cool but boy it cost a lot of money and I forget how many yards of concrete he said was there but when the building was all done uh, Bill would walk out there with no inhibition and he would stand there because he well understood by design everything that was underneath of that that was holding it up He had no fear or bore no sense of this is going to be awful because he was standing upon a superstructure that had been revealed to him by all of the engineers and he knew a core assumption that it was going to be stable for him to be there. One of the things that keeps us from melting through our core in the midst of hard things we face in life is knowing the superstructure of what is there, and that is God is working for our good. And that core assumption keeps us going forward. I'm grateful for that core assumption. The co- this is a common axiom for the pious It's what we understand. It is an earnest hope and realization that all will work out for the best. There's a Jewish rabbi who said, even in Judaism, headed toward Christ, fulfilling all that was anticipated, let a man accustom himself to say, this is Rabbi Akiba, all that the Almighty does, he does for good. Now I ask you, do we carry such an assumption around with us? Now, what's interesting is this verse is variously translated. It's a common verse, but it's translated. Here, here's a few. Here's English Standard Version. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. New American Standard Version. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. King James Version. And we know that all things work together for good. NIV. And we know that in all things, God works together for good. The good of those who love him for those who have been called according to his purpose. New Living Translation. And we know that God causes everything together for good. Now let's talk about this just for a moment. And try to remember with me. I know it's hard for me to. Eighth grade grammar. And let's not get very complex. There's a subject. And there's a verb. And there's an object. Now the question is, who is the subject? But before we answer that question, let's think about the verb. 
if you look at this verb, it, 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 you have to kind of put four English words together to get there. Uh, causes, uh, causes it together for. That's the heart nuance of the verb. It's about a cause, but a particular kind of a cause. A cause of bringing together, and then it's modified, but for good. So a cause of bringing together. That's the action. A cause of bringing together for. Now, uh, the, the, you remember the direct object. That always receives the action of the verb. So the question is, what is being caused together Framed in a case that requires the direct object is all things. So verbal action, again, I'm getting to the subject. Stay with me. Caused together for all things good. That's how you would, in a wooden literal way, read it. Uh, So that all things are what is acted Upon by the subject. So all things, here's the point, is not the subject. But in some of the translations, it reads as all things work together. No, all things receives the action of the verb work together, all things. The causal agent then is actually understood, but not in the text. You say, Eric, what in the world is that? Well, in this language of the first century, they had what's called ellipsis. It's just a six-dollar word for, they don't put all the words in there, but you know them from the context. So the question for the reader is, who is the causal agent bringing this together, those all things, direct object, verb, cause to be brought together, who's doing that? The context requires it to be None other than God himself. So that it is to be read, like the New American Standard has it, and we know that God causes all things to work together, the verbal idea, all for good. So at any given time, what is going on is that God is working to bring it all together. So the reader's question, who is it that is bringing about good in all of these things? It is none other than God himself, our advocate, who's vying for us in life. He's going to get to that later. Uh, What do we say? If God's for us, who can be against us? Verse 31, we will get there. That's next. So one transforming truth is the foundation of joyful perseverance is the assumption that God is at work bringing about good in our lives, and we know. Now, secondly, only God could take the sum of our experience and cause good and bring conformity to his son. It's an astounding assertion by Joseph for him to say, you intended it for evil. By the way, is he right in making that assertion? Absolutely. His brothers wanted to stick it to him, and they did. You intended it for evil. But God used that evil experience in Joseph's life for ultimate good. This is a page out of God's playbook. This is how he works. He is for us as our advocate. 
God has a unique skill set like no other. He's almighty God and without limit. Eric, I cannot imagine any way that this circumstance could ever result in any good. Well, you have underestimated the ability of almighty God. He is infinite in what he does. Only God can take the sum of our experience and cause good and bring conformity to his son. Now, when Joseph says that at 56 years old, you and I have known 56 years old for which life's wounds have not been resolved. And that's okay. Because God always writes the last chapter and he's not finished with his work in this life or what will be revealed to us in the life to come. Three questions and we're done. This glorious verse asks us three probing questions. Number one, do we even want God's good? Do we even want God's good? Now in verse 29, which we'll get to next week. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What is God doing, Eric? What is he doing in your life? Do you have all the particulars figured out? No. Do you know any generals that are going on? Yes. What's he doing? He is working to conform me to the person of his son, and that's exactly what he's doing in your life if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Eric, I can't imagine a purpose in what this stuff that I, is that I'm going through He's conforming you. And so then the question becomes, do we want what God wants for us? Isn't it true that it hurts to be conformed to the Son because we are so unlike Him and we are required to repent? God's good is greater than any good that we could ever imagine for ourselves. Now, the second question is, are we willing to trust our Lord when it does not seem like it is good? And this is the challenge of walking with Jesus in life. We walk by faith, not by sight. Isn't it easy and wonderful to walk with our Lord when it's all going great? But the hard part comes when it's not going great. And maybe you walked in this morning and it's not going great. But one confidence we can have when it's not going great is that uh, God is at work. Bringing about good. I love Haddon Robinson's trilogy. You've heard me say it before. It's so well spoken. I love it. We are called to follow Jesus to trust when we cannot trace, to undergo what we do not understand, and to step where we cannot see. But how, Eric? How do we do it? We do it leaning into, remember, what we know. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Third question probes our hearts this morning is, are we the, experiencing the rest 
that comes with knowing that God is causing good to come out of all things together. Kent Hughes said, the Christian should not view present distresses and reversals as ultimately destructive. Have you ever watched a cliffhanger movie for the second time? You know, the one that had you by the throat till the resolution at the end. But after that, you, you re- oh, wow, that was a relief. Did you ever notice how different your response is when you watch it the second time? Because you watch it with the knowledge of how it will all be resolved. So that frenzy, that stress, that tension, that anxiety you felt, it's not there because you know how this one resolves. There's an undercurrent of your assumption that makes it dissimilar than the first time you watch it. Building our lives upon the rock of Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 gives us a sense through life that we've already seen the outcome even though we have not yet. And it's an outcome of which we can rest assured and we can take heart. It's good. God is working. His work is wise and his work is right. In the end, all things together work out for good. Some argue that Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 is mythical happy talk. Disconnected from how life actually is. Stuff people talk about who comes to rooms like this and open God's book like this. Oh, you got a brain tumor? Oh, you'll get better. You just need time. Some argue that's happy talk. Happy talk, they call it. Oh, Eric, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Maybe you like that country western song. But actually, you and I have seen what almost killed people to dismantle their lives and really hurt them greatly. That's just happy talk. Happy talk. You know what? Romans 8 and 28 is not in the category of happy talk. It's about the certain reality of a great God at work in his world. Trials, yep. Difficulties, they will come. But God in Christ is working out his good in our lives. We can be certain of that. That changes how we live. That changes what we feel. That changes how we sojourn forward. I want to serve a God like that. Don't you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for disclosing yourself to us to be such a God. We are in desperate need of you. And that thought that you are at work is a glorious thought that gives us grace to take the next step. Well, show us your glory and bring us to honor you, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.